Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, hi, and welcome to another episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I am your host, Emma Gunn Awardner, and in this midweek Bullet Points mini-show, I lean into a topic that has been coming into the show via emails and DMs from you, my most excellent listeners. Now, I'm guessing that somewhere on the World Wide Web, some of my videos or podcasts about my issues with food, eating disorders, body dysmorphia, body image, etc. have been shared because I have had a sudden influx of messages asking me to explain a bit more. Now, I haven't been tagged in anything, so I don't know what exactly has been shared, but it's been a significant amount and the messages have been quite specific. And the specific is that people have been asking me to talk about the negative patterns of behavior I spotted around how I ate and my relationship with food and body image and how I fixed them. And oh, dear listener, would that it were so simple. I suppose, though, from the outside, it looks as though I read a book, that book being Brain Over Binge by Katherine Hansen, which I will link in the show notes, and then poof, I was fixed. But that simply isn't the case. But I appreciate that based on what I share and what you see in my life via the podcast and via my Instagram feed, that might be how my story reads. I am not fixed. I am not recovered. I am definitely in recovery and I am constantly aware that I have to constantly aware that I have to check myself with and around food. And before I say anything else, I need to say this at the top of this episode. I am sharing my experience. Everything you hear in this episode is anecdotal and does not come from a place of expertise. I have no qualifications and no formal diagnosis. I have no business giving specific or personalized advice. But if, by sharing my experience, someone listening is able to unlock their own complicated relationship with food, body image, etc., then I think it's a, a story worth telling. I know how painful it was to feel locked into that dynamic and that prison, that mental and emotional prison. And so if, uh, if there's a key for someone within the words that you're about to hear, then I think it's worth sharing. 
With that said, I will be sharing links to the eating disorder organisations Beat Eating Disorders and Seed and also the Nightingale Hospital here in the UK who are all experts in their field and in this particular subject. And additionally, before I outline what I'll be sharing in this in this episode, I should say that I'm sharing my experiences and my desire to lose weight does not mean that I'm telling anyone else to. Discussions around weight, weight loss, weight, weight gain, body image, body size, the vocabulary we use has become quite volatile. And as much as I try very hard not to offend anyone in the episodes I create, I realize that just by telling my story, there may be people who feel I'm saying something unhelpful. Please know my intention is never to offend, alienate or upset. So in this episode, I'll be covering uh, seven points that I think cover all of the questions that I have come across in these emails that I've received over the last uh, seven to 10 days. Firstly, when I first came to realize that my issues with food weren't greed or a lack of willpower. Secondly, how it felt before I was able to piece together those negative behaviors, what was really going on and how the only way I'd been able to articulate my feelings around food had been to say I felt addicted. Thirdly, why I spent four years blaming, four years, why I spent years blaming my hormones and not taking accountability for my actions and behaviors when it came to my weight gain, how I was able to implement changes and not fall into the trap of yet another unsustainable diet and fitness regime. My fifth point is the resources that are available and how much help there is out there for people who feel they are going through this or are experiencing these kinds of struggles. My sixth point is why recovery looks different for everyone. For me, it was weight loss, but for someone else, it might be weight gain or it might be weight maintenance. And my final point in this episode is why it's not a fix. I definitely don't consider myself recovered. I feel as I'm in recovery. And so that means it, it involves work. There's constant work, not hard work. I mean, it does get easier, but it just involves keeping your eye on it. So let's begin, shall we? The first point, when I came to realize that my issues with food weren't greed or a lack of willpower. So realizing my issues with food didn't mean that I was greedy or had absolutely no willpower was a real breakthrough because truthfully, that is what I always thought it was. And I guess that's also what other people told me. My experience as an overweight person was that people would often point out how it might be a good idea for me to eat a little less and exercise a little bit more. And the really frustrating thing about that was it did work, but I could never make it last and I could never maintain my results. So with weight loss, I'd experience the highs of feeling I was on top of things and enjoy the praise I'd receive for losing weight. But then inevitably, I'd be unable to sustain whatever diet and exercise regime I was doing and the weight would go back on. And I'd feel ashamed and I would feel embarrassed and I would stop going out and I would wish people didn't see me. The issue here, which only became clear when I'd reached my limit of being so fed up and ashamed of myself, wasn't that I failed at diets and exercise regimes, it's that my normal way of eating that I went back to was one where I'd gain weight and so the shame spiral would continue. The issue wasn't with diet and exercise when you think about it, I was actually pretty good at those, it was with how I behaved when I wasn't doing either of those things. Outside of a structured diet and fitness plan, I'd freewheel to about 30 pounds above what I was when I was on a diet, but again we'll come back to that shortly. I only realized there was something more significant at play when my friend Alex Light came on the podcast. She's been through her own experiences with food, body image and an eating disorder. And she shares her all of that on her social media feed, which is absolutely brilliant and her podcast. And she's fantastic. 
And when we chatted, I think she could see quite how deeply my issues were affecting me. And she suggested I read it. I read it. I read the book Brain Over Binge. And before this, I honestly didn't know that my complicated feelings around the way that I consumed food qualified as an eating disorder or even fell into a category anywhere close to one. I always thought I was one of the unlucky ones. I didn't believe I ate differently from other people and so I couldn't fathom why they stayed slim and I gained weight. I thought I was one of those unlucky people who looked at a burger and put on weight. How many times have you heard someone say that I'm one of the unlucky ones? I have to, I only look at a carb and I gain 10 pounds. And the truth is, I probably wouldn't have eaten the burger, but I would have eaten a healthy alternative and believing that it was good food, good in inverted commas, I probably would have eaten twice as much. So really, what that tells you and what I can see now in hindsight is that I just didn't understand food and how to feed myself. And when I was eating, I probably wasn't looking to nourish my hunger or to feed my hunger. There was something else at play. Anyway, back to the book. So I've said it before, but I was pretty annoyed when Alex suggested I read that because the title was quite triggering. I was, I'm not a binger. I didn't go through a drive-through and order enough food for four people and eat fistfuls at a time while sitting in the car park with my seatbelt still on. But what that proves is that I didn't really know very much about eating disorders other than what I'd seen in the films. And just to say, those cross feelings were very misdirected towards Alex. Um, I love her dearly. She's a, she's a very good friend. And she's one of my favourite people. Um, and I thank her hugely for telling me to read that book because ultimately it did make um help me change my life now the full title of the book is actually brain over binge why i was bulimic why conventional therapy didn't work and how i recovered for good at this point i should probably say that i wasn't bulimic i never purged and i also never had a binge where i was out of control um in the description it's kind of like almost it almost feels as though the descriptions that you almost have an out-of-body experience like you kind of almost slightly removed from it Um, I've never felt like that. At the time, though, when I read the book, I identified with so much of what Catherine said around the urges, feelings of shame, lack of control, need to atone for what I'd eaten, that I actually found a real sense of relief in the feelings of familiarity I had with her description. In the book, she describes binge eating disorder, BED, as a type of eating disorder not otherwise specified and is characterized by recurrent binge eating without the regular use of compensatory measures to counter the binge eating. And to me, that felt like it covered what I was going through, although I realized later it wasn't entirely accurate, but more on that to come. So that really covers off point one of... uh, when I first came to realize that my issues with food weren't just greed and lack of willpower. The second thing I wanted to mention is how it felt before I was able to piece together those negative behaviors, what was really going on and how the only way I'd been able to articulate my feelings around food had been to say I felt addicted. Now, although this was a breakthrough moment, it's worth delving a little bit into how I felt before I read the book. And that's really what I want to try and get into with this particular section what that cycle was that I was on and why I reached my limit with it. And so the best way I'd been able to describe how I felt around food was, as I said, to say I felt addicted. And I recorded an episode of the podcast with psychotherapist Mandy Saligari about this. And I'll link to it in the show notes because it unpeels a lot of the layers around this and they come directly from Mandy. So they are extremely helpful and insightful and better listened to in that episode directly to her rather than me trying to paraphrase it here. But I can tell you, that in my life, because of my feelings around food, I had felt uncomfortable at buffets in case other people thought I took too much and they'd think I was greedy and or deserved to be overweight. 
cancelled plans last minute that involved uh, eating, like going to a restaurant because I was frightened to eat a meal because of what all because of what I had already eaten in the day. Barely eaten in front of other people, so they think I didn't eat a lot. And when I would say things like "I don't understand why I gain weight," they would think, "Well, yeah, we never see her eat." Um, I couldn't keep food in the house because I was either scared I would eat at all, or I would, in actual fact, eat at all. Um, I would go to the supermarket and find it impossible to find anything to eat because everything was bad and in inverted commas. And what I really wanted was sort of like aeroplane food. I just wanted single portions. The idea of going home with a bag full of groceries and only eating a single portion of something and then putting the other stuff in the fridge or in the cupboards just felt almost impossible. I would never feel satisfied after a meal and I would always become peckish immediately afterwards. And I would go for long periods of not eating, thinking that that was good, again, in inverted commas. Air quotes don't really work on 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 podcasts, but hey, let's roll with it. And then also, the other thing I did was I spent a lot of time thinking about food and thinking about my next meal. And I was also a bit of an alchemist. If I had, like I said, there wasn't really much in the in the house in terms of food but I could rustle up something vile (laughs) out of what I did have and it would just kind of scratch that itch if that made any sense so you can understand there was a lot going on and it really was the tip of the iceberg but it gives you an idea that it was all consuming which is why I guess the best word I could use to describe it was addiction but no one really I have to say when I had said it to people I'd I'd always not fallen on deaf ears but kind of the response had always been a bit flat of like hmm interesting but then no sort of follow-up of maybe try this but anyway I'll repeat something um, I said earlier here because I think it's really important I didn't think this was an eating disorder I thought this was all tangled up in a lack of self-control and being a fundamentally greedy person and what I guess I mean by that is I didn't realize or understand there were resources available to me to help with this and that I didn't have to fix this on my own. I thought that I was just a bad person. I didn't realise I was working against something slightly bigger than just me. And if there's one thing anyone listening to this who feels the same kind of discomfort, confusion and pain that I did can take away, I hope it's to know that there is help available and you're not alone. Like what you're feeling and thinking, it isn't your normal default setting. It's something that you can work on. The third thing I wanted to talk about as well is why I'd spent years blaming my hormones um, and not taking accountability for my actions and behaviours with regard to food and my weight. And I feel like this is venturing into muddy territory and I've gone back and forth on whether to include it, but here goes. And again, this is personal to me, but it may resonate. And so for that reason, I thought I'm going to include it. So I was diagnosed with PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, or ovary syndrome, sorry, which is an endocrine disorder when I was 17, but I presented with symptoms from the age of around 11. My memory is sketchy. And one of those symptoms, it's like 11 or 12, but one of those symptoms was weight gain and it was sudden and it was a lot. Kids get bullied. I got bullied for being fat. I can still vividly remember going down the slide and one of the other girls in my class saying how disgusting I looked and how disgusting my belly was and sort of making that horrible sort of face of sneering dismissal and disapproval. And I'm a sensitive soul and I didn't have the sense of self to be bulletproof to those sorts of comments. And so I absorbed every single one as if it were true. Anytime anyone told me I was something, I didn't question it, I just believed it. And the book I talked about, Brain Over Binge, has why conventional therapy didn't work in the title. And as much as I know 
that there are lots of knots, tangles and complications around my body image and relationship with food that stem back to my childhood, as I'm sure it does for everybody. The work to unpick, untangle and make sense felt like a secondary task to actually addressing the day-to-day issue. They're two very big things. And I'm not saying there isn't value in unpicking them. But I, I really, I, I really felt a sense of urgency about I have like I really need to sort out how I eat, and I felt a little bit like sort of going into the long-winded process of untangling all of that might be another way of not actually facing up to the the immediate issue. But again, I'm willing to be proven wrong. Um, that it worked for me is all I can say. That's not to say that that still isn't work worth doing. I know that a lot of my feeling of self-worth, poor body image, unhelpful eating, self-sabotaging behaviors, etc., laid root during those years, and I accept them. I accept that it happened. It's not amazing. I don't linger on them, and I don't blame them. I accept it. It is what it is. And for years, though. I would be quick to tell people I had PCOS, so I had some sort of defense against any comment about my weight, or so I could get ahead of any potential nasty comment, or worse, worse still, a helpful observation. I think anyone who's um, ever had a helpful observation about what somebody could, what someone else thinks you should do about your weight uh, will know exactly what I mean. But I would say things like, because I have PCOS, I gain weight really easily, and I know that at some point I rolled out the old... I can eat a lettuce leaf and it would make me gain weight because I've got PCOS. And although this is a complicated health issue and there are there are complications that make weight gain easier and it, I'm not going to go into a full episode about PCOS. I've done enough shows on hormones and maybe we can dig into that in a special episode. But it's just not entirely true for me to have made those blanket statements. What I was doing was using PCOS as an excuse Again, this is personal, but it was easier to blame PCOS than it was to face up to my behaviour. It was easier to blame PCOS than it was to be accountable and responsible. And let's face it, one is a lot easier than the other. It's a lot easier to blame a condition than it is to face up to and correct behaviours that are negatively impacting your life, even if you desperately want what's on the other side of those changes. Again, please understand this is my experience and this doesn't mean it has to be yours or it is yours. But for me, the majority of positive changes I've made with this and many other things, I have to be honest, are when I've acknowledged my role and taken responsibility for it whether it was my fault or not. Actually, there's a great video by Will Smith that I saw lovely Ruth Corden share on Instagram this week, which covers this perfectly. So again, I'll link that in the show notes. But I felt it was important to mention this because I know one of the biggest shifts for me in being able to make the changes I made was to stop being a victim and face up to my role. And I know that's not applicable to everything, but it was for me here, which is why I wanted to share, to sort of stop putting up these barriers as to why something wasn't happening for me. I just... as as tough as it was to remove all of those barriers and go well the answer lies with me help me make the changes that I needed to make which is why I wanted to mention it and so I guess uh, one of the most frequent questions I get is how I was able to implement changes um, and what those were and for me it really covers how I was able to not fall into the trap of yet another unsustainable diet and fitness regime and like I said, this isn't altogether straightforward, but this is the thing that came up most in the emails. And this honestly comes down to me being totally fed up of it when I read that book. And by it, I mean being overweight. I found it uncomfortable physically as much as anything else. And I honestly didn't want this to be the thing I could never figure out. I'm really happy not ever learning the piano. I'm fine with not being able to do a cartwheel, but not being able to feel comfortable around food and to feel uncomfortable in my own skin because of it 
I just reached a point where I thought, no, that's just not going to fly. I'm not going to accept it. I'd blame my hormones. I'd, I'd hoped supplements, medicine, etc., would help. But I knew deep down that wasn't the answer. And remember I said that it was my behavior when I wasn't on a diet or on a fitness kick that was the issue. Well, to help, to sort of get me moving forward, that was what I focused on. And I won't lie though, my instinct was to immediately start running again. After I read that book and I realized I needed to do something different, I thought, right, I'll run seven days a week and I'll ditch carbs and I'll go all in on restricting food. And that was my panic response that was familiar. And let's face it, I'd had some success with it in the past, but the whole point was that I didn't want to set myself up for failure. And that's what I would have been doing if I'd gone down that road again. So I completely shifted my focus and I put my attention on how I ate. I knew I was disciplined enough to work out. I always have done. I've run a half marathon for goodness sake. And I have, I've always worked out a lot. So I reasoned that fundamentally, if I was going to crack this, and trust me, it really did feel feel like a cold case unsolved mystery, I needed to find a way of eating that felt sustainable and allowed me to achieve my goals. And this is where I will be vague and I hope you understand. I don't believe it's helpful for anyone to say what they eat or how much they eat. And when I see people sharing what I eat in a day videos, it makes me uncomfortable I've seen people take pictures of food, put them on their Instagram feed and then not eat it. I've misused that kind of content before and I will leave it at that. But what I can tell you is that I was determined not to restrict any foods, except for the ones I really don't like. I was like, nothing's going to be off the table except roasted red peppers, which I can't stand. And a few other things. I found a calorie calculator online to work out my personal calorie target. There are lots of these, but I'd avoid anything that sets you a limit that's too low. I remember when Gillian Michaels came on the podcast, she said something, I think it was 1400 is the absolute floor. And I just tried to stick to that as closely as possible. And I'd say the first six weeks were the hardest because I was adapting to eating less, but also less often. But I was no longer engaging in those prolonged periods of not eating but I also wasn't snacking because all I really focused on was being mindful to simply eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And as someone who doesn't really do breakfast, I tend not to eat until about 11 or 12. What I mean by breakfast is a large coffee. So honestly, that was the key when it came to being sustainable for me. I was simply eating meals and making sure that the sum calorie total of those meals didn't exceed the goal I'd set myself for each day and that every one of those meals nourished me and gave me the fuel I needed to get through the day and tasted good and in terms of exercise I stopped doing it to have any kind of effect on what I could or couldn't eat I exercised to get stronger and feel better I was like right if I do a leg workout one day a week if I do an upper body workout another day a week and if I do a core workout another day of the week that's three workout there's no way I there's no way that's not going to be good and so I just leaned into that I was just doing three workouts a week and that was when I started to see and feel the changes for me though I really did try to break that link between exercise and what I was eating and instead tried to enjoy exercise as something that made me feel capable and it's really transformed my relationship with my body and what I try to aim for in when I'm working out and just like feeling stronger and everything is amazing so that was a really helpful sort of break for me rather than using it as a thing of oh if I can if I can work out then I can eat that or I ate that last night so I'll work out the fifth thing that I wanted to mention was the resources that are available and how much help there is out there for people who are experiencing these kind of struggles and feelings it's so important to know that I know that probably sounds really simple um yeah there's loads of resources but if there's one thing I wish I'd done differently 
it would be that I checked in with the support systems available through the organisations I've mentioned, like Beat and Seed and Nightingale Hospital. I was at such an emotionally critical junction when I read the book that I just put my head down and resolved this was going to be the end of it. I knew BED didn't quite cover what I felt and experienced, but it was close enough and it was the helpful nudge I needed to rethink my approach to how I ate. It was only when I spoke to Dr. Ruby Orgler on the podcast, I think it was around the end of 2020, that he actually even mentioned the questionnaire on the BEAT website that helps you identify what your specific issues are with and around food and what that might look like as an eating disorder. And I didn't seek out these these resources, but it's so important to know they are there. I wonder if I would have had an easier time of it had I known, um, had I known that they were there to be found. For example, I had previously said that rather than BED, I was more likely to fit into a bracket where I overrate with the occasional impulse to binge. But it's probably better described, as explained on the BEAT website, as something called offset, which means other specified feeding or eating disorder. And if you feel confused helpless or addicted in the way that I described earlier around food then it might be helpful to talk through those feelings and find out if you're working against something that there's no shame in asking for support with these are not small minimal issues these are um, these are really difficult mountain uh, mental and emotional mountains to climb and there are resources there to help you The sixth thing I wanted to cover also is why recovery looks different for everyone so for me it was weight loss for someone else it could be weight gain or even maintenance. Every time I talk about my personal experience, I know that it has the potential to upset and defend because this is such an emotionally charged discussion. I'm not suggesting anyone else needs to lose weight, but I can't imagine I was alone or am alone in my feelings of self-hatred and self-sabotage. And if sharing my experience helps someone navigate themselves away from those feelings, then it feels appropriate to do it. But I'm certainly not saying that my way is the right way or the only way. And enough of you email me asking me about this for me to believe that there are those of you out there who want me to share this. And additionally, and this is something I said in an article I wrote recently for Women's Health, and I remember when I wrote it, I thought, oh, crikey, it was a bit of a breakthrough moment. If I'd said it in a therapy session, I'm sure we would have, I don't know, cheered water glasses at this breakthrough, but it did feel like a breakthrough. I was never going to accept myself as plus size and embrace my body as much as there's so much content out there that says that that's the direction that we should be going in. And I don't get me wrong, I think body acceptance is wonderful. But uh, I was never going to accept myself as plus size because I knew that on some level it would mean that I was ignoring a bigger problem. It would be accepting that I had an eating disorder I was going to do nothing about. And like I said earlier, that just didn't fly with me. And the seventh point I wanted to make, but that's my personal experience. That was just how I felt about it. It doesn't mean that you have to feel that way. And my final point, why it's not a fix. I certainly don't consider myself recovered. I feel as I'm in recovery and that involves work. As much as I've had thoughtful emails from you, my most excellent listeners, asking me about what I've covered here, I've also had messages that have been a little bit more, shall we say, succinct, like, please tell me what diet you did, or I don't have time to listen to your whole podcast, just tell me how many calories you eat in a day. And it's just not as simple as that. It's not a fix. I am very aware that this is something I need to keep an eye on to make sure I don't backtrack. And that's only because those behaviours I've worked hard to change were ingrained for so long that the needle can sometimes move in the wrong direction when I kind of take my eye off the ball. If I find myself preoccupied with any of the thoughts or feelings I listed out earlier when I talked about feeling addicted, and they do crop up from time to time, then I'll revisit the book or I'll go to the Beat website to remind myself that I am working against something that's not easy and I cut myself a break. I don't aim for perfection. 
I just aim to do my best because honestly, my best is all I can do. And my best got better because I was honest, faced up to what I was doing. And eventually, although as admitted, not immediately, eventually I read up on what the issues were so that I knew exactly what I was dealing with and knew what resources were available to me if I needed a little bit of support. And that is what I would encourage anyone who has listened to this and feels any of the feelings that I have described. If you uh, need support, it's out there for you. And as I said, it will all be linked in the show notes. Um, like I said, somewhere in the world, my uh, one of my videos or podcasts got shared because there was suddenly an influx of emails. So I tried to cover this off again because I, I completely understand that sometimes there's hundreds and hundreds of podcasts and to actually to scroll through to find some of the older ones can be uh, quite laborious and sort of a bit annoying. So sometimes I don't like to repeat my content, but sometimes I try to update things that people are asking about regularly so that you don't have to constantly scroll. And I hope that that was a helpful bullet points for anyone who is struggling with this sort of thing. And just if you don't struggle with this, but you know somebody who does, you have a friend who maybe has said the thing like, I can look at a lettuce leaf and gain weight, or if I look at a burger, um, just just cut them a break. Just just be compassionate because it can be a really tough mental prison you can find yourself in. I definitely felt really bad. Um, and I was always very secretive about it. And so if you're listening to this and it's not something you experience, but you maybe have a friend who you think might maybe, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily, hey, listen to this, I think this is you. But maybe just bear that in mind when you're chatting to them and um, just be helpful, supportive and compassionate. Anyway, as I said, I always try and make these episodes for you, especially bullet points, which is always born out of your emails that I get throughout the week. So if you would like to make a comment about this one, you can DM me. Uh, on Instagram and Twitter, where I'm at Emma Guns, you can email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com, or you can pop into the Facebook group and share your thoughts, feelings with me and thousands of other listeners of this podcast. And there, the link to join the Facebook group will be in the show notes. And obviously, um, you have to agree to a rule and you have to answer a question. I can't let you in if you don't agree to the rule, so please agree to the rule. Um, and I will, I can't wait to see you there. I will put a post in there about this when this episode goes live and hopefully we'll start a discussion. And it would just be great to know what you think, if this is helpful, if you have any other points, discussions that you would like me to bring into this conversation to elaborate or move it forward next time we broach this subject. Um, it'd be great to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. I do not take the time that you spend with me for granted. I appreciate it hugely. I will see you on the next one. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.